Hi, I'm Sophie Rideout, and this is Policy Talks. On this episode, we sit down with Dr. Jim Stanford and discuss the future of the cost of living crisis, Canada's corresponding fiscal and monetary policies, as well as economic transitions and their impact on a sustainable economy. Dr. Jim Stanford is economist and director of the Centre for Future Work and is one of Canada's best-known economic commentators. Serving for over 20 years as economist and director of policy with Unifor, Canada's largest private sector trade union, he is quoted frequently in the print and broadcast media and writes a regular column for the Toronto Star. Dr. Stanford is the Harold Innes Industry Professor in Economics at McMaster University and is an honorary professor in the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney. He has also served for many years as a research associate and volunteer with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He is recognized for communicating the importance of economic accessibility and for his research on Canada's post-pandemic economy. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, iAffairs Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, or the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now let's dive into the show. We are so excited to have you here, Dr. Stanford. To start off, can you please tell us about your work and your field of research? Sure. I work as the uh, director of the Center for Future Work. Uh, That is a a small labor economics think tank. Uh, We have offices in uh, Vancouver, Canada, and also uh, Canberra in Australia. Uh, So we work in two countries and we're looking at labor market trends, uh, immediate issues like wage growth and fairness uh, in workplaces, but also longer term issues like technological change or uh, the gig economy and how uh, some of those factors are changing the world of work. Amazing, thank you. Um, Are you also able to provide a brief overview of the definition of economic transitions and their importance to a sustainable economy? Uh, Sure. Well, uh, the term transition, of course, is a pretty vague term, isn't it? And it gets used in different ways by different people with different goals and different ideas uh, in mind. Uh, And of course, it's become a very common term in relation to the energy transition that we're seeing around the world uh, as we move off of fossil fuels and towards uh, renewable energy, Um, both for environmental reasons, of course. But nowadays, renewable energy is actually cheaper on a full cycle basis than fossil fuels. So uh, just the the pure economics are driving an acceleration of the adoption of renewable energy technologies like uh, wind, solar, uh, geothermal, and so on. So uh, that term transitions uh, is often used in that setting, but really transition could occur, uh, could could be uh, applied to any major change in the makeup uh, of the economy. And we've had lots of transitions in Canada's economic history. There's nothing new really about what's happening in the fossil fuel area. Uh, just think about the different things that Canada's economy has been based on uh, over the over the, the the centuries. You know, we used to depend on exports of raw fish and beaver pelts and you know, wheat and other you know bulk agricultural commodities. And over time, those things uh, faded, and we ended up developing a more diversified industrial economy. Manufacturing was our big export. Uh, in the post-war decades, but then that kind of shrunk uh, more recently. Now we've moved uh, 
in some ways back towards resources development with the big uh, oil sands boom that we've had since the turn of the century, but also uh, towards uh, services, uh, including public services, uh, which are making up a growing share of our overall economy. Every one of those changes was a big transition. In fact, uh, I've looked at the scale of those transitions in the past, and many of them were more dramatic than the uh, what's going to be required to get off of fossil fuels. Uh, I think that historic uh, perspective is necessary because, you know, some people say, well, it can't happen or the economy is going to fall apart as we move off of fossil fuels. And that's nonsense. We've we've moved off of other things uh, in the past and, and managed to adapt and adjust. And we will do the same with fossil fuels. So uh, I would broadly describe transition as uh, any kind of major shift in the structural makeup of the economy. The one we're talking about these days, of course, is the shift away from fossil fuels. 100%. And I, I definitely do agree that I think when people realize that shifting away from fossil fuels to more sustainable industries, when they realize that it's not quite as difficult or as expensive as they initially think, they're a lot more receptive to it. So thank you. Yeah, I think so. And we have to, in some ways, counter some of the advertising that we get from, you know, the fossil fuel industry, for example, which wants to, for their own reasons, uh, promote the idea that uh, Canada's totally dependent on fossil fuel and we must continue to support this industry. So we see in the advertising from groups like uh, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, for example, or uh, every time you fly on Air Canada now, you get a big ad uh, after they've told you to put your seatbelt on from uh, the oil sands producers saying, you know, this is very important and we're moving to net zero production, etc., etc. Very self-interested advertising that is aimed at uh, creating fear that if we do move away from fossil fuels, somehow we're jeopardizing our prosperity. And the historic evidence and the international evidence is quite to the contrary. We can make transitions like this and make them successful. Amazing, yes, thank you. And I think that's actually sort of similar to our next question here, which is with respect to the cost of living crisis. Can you tell us a bit about what is being termed the cost of living crisis and what does this mean and when did we begin to see the rise of this crisis? Well, the cost of living refers to the kind of average uh, expenses that people have to pay uh, in order to, you know, just cover the basic necessities of life, uh, including, of course, you know, uh, food, clothing and shelter and the other essentials, but also the other things that we, we buy, uh, transportation, entertainment, services, uh, even public services are part of the cost of living. If you have to pay uh, high amounts in user fees or uh, if your health care is privatized and you now have to pay extra for a doctor, that's part of the cost of living as well. Uh, so put all those things together and you're, you're, you're basically asking, uh, is the average person able to uh, have a decent lifestyle based on a combination of their own personal income that they make through a job or through other means and uh, the provision of public services uh, through government, things that uh, we don't have to pay for like schools and for the most part healthcare. Uh, the current uh, cost of living crisis, of course, is uh, an after effect of the COVID pandemic. Uh, we saw, of course, uh, some incredible disruptions in the economy because of the pandemic. Entire industries were shut down. Uh, global trade uh, was completely uh, uh, sort of shocked and disrupted. Supply chains uh, were thrown into chaos. Uh, we saw big shortages of uh, uh, things, you know, building products, semiconductors, new cars. Uh, for a couple of years, very hard to buy a new car. Uh, then, as the pandemic kind of settled down, and the global economy and the Canadian economy uh, reopened, 
Then you saw something else happen. Now you had uh, people able to go out and shop again, which they hadn't been able to do for several months. So there was quite a pent up demand and a bit of a desperation among consumers to uh, get some of those necessities. Uh, combined with the lingering effects of those uh, supply chain disruptions and shortages. Uh, then on top of all that, you had an energy price uh, shock um, starting you know, a year and a bit ago from the war in Ukraine. Not directly related to the war, Ukraine does not produce oil. This is the funny thing. Uh, but there's a war in Ukraine and then global oil markets got all panicky and speculated uh, that prices would shoot up and, and that, that sort of became self-fulfilling. So. Put all those together and you had a, a situation where inflation, which traditionally over recent decades was running at about 2% a year, suddenly inflation took off. And uh, it was clearly an after effect of the pandemic, kind of the, you know, the aftershocks, if you like, of uh, something that we've never done before. We've never shut down whole parts of the economy in the interests of public health. So we should have expected there'd be some after effects from that. Um, and in fact, uh, there were. So uh, we had um, inflation going as high as 8.1%. That was the highest level in Canada. That was last June, June 2022. People's incomes were not growing 8.1%. I can assure you wages were growing at, you know, kind of three or 4% a year. They've picked up a little bit since then, but uh, still you saw the real purchasing power of Canadians wages shrink. Well, and that is the cost of living crisis. You, you can't buy what you used to buy. And uh, so Canadians have been struggling with that. Then making matters worse, the uh, Bank of Canada, our central bank, uh, their kind of one note response to the rise in inflation after COVID was to jack up uh, domestic interest rates. And their goal there is to cool off spending and also lift the unemployment rate. They thought the unemployment rate was too low. Uh, it, it was kind of hovering around 5% which is not bad by historical standards, but not zero. So, but they wanted more than 5% unemployment and, and that's what they're getting. So they're, they're trying to slow down the economy, lift unemployment, reduce people's wages and thereby cool off inflation. And a, a side effect of that is you, many households, particularly anyone with a mortgage, but other forms of debt as well, like credit cards or new car loans, uh, they are now paying tens of billions of dollars more per year to the banks. Uh, in higher interest charges rather than having that money available to spend on food, clothing and shelter. So that's made the cost of living crisis uh, worse. It's kind of a double edged sword. One edge is the fact that prices are rising more than wages. The other edge is the fact that on top of that, you now pay a lot more in interest uh, if you have any kind of debt. Uh, so there's lots of evidence that Canadians are kind of being pushed to the wall a bit. Uh, in terms of how uh, how they're going to pay their monthly bills and, and kind of meet the necessities of life. And uh, unfortunately, Sophie, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Oh, boy. So between the pandemic and then the rising um, interest rates, inflation, those are two pretty big factors. Are there any other external factors relating to this? or is And if there are, uh, what role do these external factors play? Uh, well, all of this has taken place in the context of many other changes and challenges that we were already grappling with before the pandemic. So the, the pandemic was obviously, uh, you know, a very dramatic and unprecedented uh, uh, crisis. Um, but, you know, there were other challenges uh, in, in Canada that included things like the energy transition that we were just uh, speaking about. 
Uh, it included new technology and how it's evolving and how that's likely to change the way we work and live in some ways for the better, in some ways for the worse. Uh, another challenge we face in Canada is uh, demographic transitions. Uh, we had, of course, the whole post-war baby boom, and that baby boom uh, is now ready to retire. So we're going to see a big change in our workforce as uh, more older Canadians retire, and that's going to put more uh, more burden on younger workers to kind of uh, keep the uh, wheels of the economy turning. But that can also mean opportunity for younger workers if there's more openings uh, to, you know, develop a career as older people uh, retire. So the economy is never, unfortunately, just kind of sitting in one place. It's always a, a bit of a turbulent, dynamic thing. And um, it is obviously hard for policymakers, including the Bank of Canada, but the federal and provincial governments and other players like businesses and trade unions and so on uh, to navigate their way through all of these different changes. For sure. And actually, kind of sort of similar on that note, um, to put you on the spot a little bit, um, we had watched your presentation at the G7A conference back in September, where you had mentioned a little bit about the transition from fossil fuels to more sustainable energy and how one of those one of the ways that that can happen is through this, the baby boomer generation from them retiring out and creating these new opportunities for workers, but also to essentially just eliminate those positions without creating unemployment. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that for those sure um through through our center for future work sophie we've done uh, some detailed research on the nature and scale and timing of that employment transition uh, that is going to be associated with the phase out of fossil fuels and we know that sooner or later we're going to stop using fossil fuels for almost everything we might still use a little bitumen for asphalt to pave our roads with but other than that uh, we aren't going to be using fossil fuels uh, for energy purposes, you know, within 20 or 30 or 40 years. And this is a, a good thing and a necessary thing. Now, um, contrary to the uh, advertising uh, that you hear from the petroleum industry, there actually aren't that many Canadians who work in direct fossil fuel roles. So we developed a, a statistical database of who's working in which different fossil fuel industries. And it's surprising. Today, it's about 0.8% of the Canadian uh, employment is in direct fossil fuel production, whether that's uh, oil and gas, oil field services, coal mining, um, even uh, petrochemicals, refining uh, pipelines to transport uh, uh, oil and gas and, and their products to different locations. So put it all together, you've got 0.8% of the workforce. That frankly is not very much. Um, now, that doesn't mean those jobs aren't important. Of course they are. They're important to the people doing them and the communities where they live. So we, we have to support them in this transition. But uh, this is doable, first of all. Uh, secondly, we also considered the whole range of different adjustment channels through which a change like uh, shifting 0.8% of employment from one industry to another over a 20 or 30 or 40 year period. How will that occur? And uh, there's many factors to take into account. It doesn't mean they're all going to get thrown out of work and told, go find another job. First of all, when you use uh, the time frame and advance notice that this is going to happen, most of the people in fossil fuel work today don't have to find another job. They'll be able to just retire from their roles as they age and as the transition gradually occurs. And this is why it is so important to have an advanced timetable, to have something like a 20-year plan to get to net zero and stick to that plan, not delay it, not defer it, not wait till the last minute, but actually facilitate that change gradually over time. 
And that way the senior people can just retire and the industry downsizes naturally without throwing people out of work. More than half of the total transition would be achieved that way as long as we put in a timetable and stuck to it. Then what about uh, younger workers who might have to find another job where the transition is completed before they've finished their careers? Uh, this is where you can look at a whole range of opportunities. I mean, an obvious one that we've talked about a lot in society is the idea that there's going to be jobs associated with renewable energy. Of course there are. Uh, somebody has to be building the, the, the wind turbines and the solar installations and the geothermal equipment and installing it and maintaining it. And in fact, that work is uh, in general more labor intensive than fossil fuel production. So if you're gonna produce the same amount of energy from renewable sources rather than fossil fuels, on a net basis, you'd get more jobs. So you're actually creating more jobs than you're losing in fossil fuels. But um, that's just the tip of the iceberg, really, that you shouldn't limit the idea of what the transition can be to just a new energy job because people in fossil fuel jobs right now have skills that could be used in a whole range of different industries, uh, including uh, construction, manufacturing, non-fossil fuels, uh, um, mining and resource industries, uh, even the amelioration and repair and reclamation of fossil fuel sites uh, to clean them up afterwards. Uh, you could also see them moving into a whole, a completely different industries like technology services uh, and so on. Uh, one interesting fact that we uh, discovered, over half of the total fossil fuel workforce in Canada work and live in cities. Uh, it's kind of contrary to the idea that you're out in the countryside, you know, running a, an oil pump. Uh, in fact, the majority of them, uh, a slight majority, over 50% work in, in major cities. And this is a very positive thing because cities have the most diverse and dynamic labor markets in Canada. and. Most of those people will be uh, relatively um, quick in finding alternative work for the skills that they have. If you work in an oil company head office and you've got technical skills, well, someone else is going to want those technical skills, particularly right now when the unemployment rate is relatively low. Uh, so that's another, uh, another dimension of the adjustment which we uh, emphasized. Uh, put them all together. As long as you create a timetable, you know, 20, 25 year timetable, Phasing out 0.8% of the workforce and finding another job for them to do is a, a absolute non-event in macroeconomic terms. Uh, it means a, a few thousand jobs per year have to be shifted from fossil fuels into any of those other sectors. And as long as that timetable is established and people are aware of it, they can make decisions based on their own preferences and their own life cycle. A good example of how this can happen, uh, Sophie, uh, in Germany, they phased out the black coal mining industry for environmental reasons uh, over a 20-year period. That's exactly the time period that they used, and they had the whole suite of adjustment measures, uh, including early retirements and facilitating mobility and retraining, and they uh, shut it down over 20 years without one person being thrown out of work. Uh, so as long as you plan it in advance and support it, uh, it can absolutely be achieved in a, in a very fair and very positive way. Sure. So definitely, it shows that if you if we create a long term plan, you stick to it. That there is success that is to be had. Um, and similar, to, literally to that, actually, um, do you believe then that the government of Canada has taken the necessary steps to mitigate the cost of living crisis, inflation, etc.? So has Canada's monetary policy been effective? Uh, well, on the cost of living issue, we're we're still struggling. Um, 
and the Bank of Canada is part of the government, even though they, you know, they have this kind of edifice that the Bank of Canada is an independent institution. It isn't really. Uh, it has a, a set of marching orders that was given by the government. The government doesn't control their operations on a day-to-day -day basis, but every few years the government reviews the Bank of Canada and says what its sort of overall goal should be. And I actually think the Bank of Canada has deviated a bit from the goal they were given by government. The last time they did this review in 2021, the government said to the Bank of Canada, yes, you should try to target inflation at a low and stable level, 2%, fine, but you also have to be doing other things, including uh, a phrase they called maximum sustainable employment, trying to make sure as many Canadians as possible are still working. And I think over the last two years, the Bank of Canada has kind of forgotten that half of its uh, marching orders from the government. It's going after that 2% target uh, no matter what, even if that means a, a recession and, and reduced uh, employment. In fact, as I mentioned, the Bank of Canada is actually trying to lift unemployment. Um, so I, I think that's a problem. I also think that we have relied too much on the Bank of Canada as the only thing to do about inflation and um, certainly you know interest rates and monetary policy is has an important role but it's not the only tool in the toolbox and if we if we assume it's the only tool in the toolbox then we end up doing one thing and one thing alone uh, increasing interest rates whereas uh, I think a more um, multi-dimensional and thoughtful anti-inflation strategy could have other elements as part of it uh, one that I would have liked to see would be more um, caps on some of the initial price increases that drove the inflationary surge after COVID in the first place. Uh, we saw uh, dramatic increases in prices in a number of areas uh, where companies were taking advantage of shortages and desperate consumers to jack up prices. And I'm not sure that we should have allowed that to happen. Uh, energy was an obvious one and in a way the worst culprit, but other things. Think about shipping costs. The international shipping industry just went to town on all of the supply chain disruptions, um, their profits went up over a thousand percent between 2019 and 2022, uh, over a thousand percent. And we all paid for that because the shipping companies were um, making hay while the sun shone uh, after the pandemic. Uh, we shouldn't allow that kind of price gouging in the context of an emergency. Uh, we see it in other ways in, in other um, industries that experience shortages like building supplies and uh, different minerals. Uh, the banks, uh, of course, have made enormous profits out of this. So I would have liked to seen measures to try and limit those initial price increases. Where that wasn't feasible or where the government moved too late, then we should redistribute some of those excess profits and uh, use uh, taxes on the super profitable companies, uh, take that surplus, and then redistribute it back to Canadians to help offset some of that cost of living crisis without locking in long-term uh, inflation. Uh, other countries uh, have done that quite successfully. We've done it a bit in Canada. I, I think, you know, we have to, I have to give some credit to the federal government. They've used uh, some uh, excess profits taxes. We have one on the banks and the financial industry, for example, and a, a kind of an excess profits tax on the oil industry, uh, which is a tax on share buybacks. And then they have done some redistribution, in particular, this expanded GST credit that you've seen. Um, the government calls it a grocery rebate. That's just uh, kind of a label. It, it has nothing directly to do with groceries. It's just a, an extra uh, credit paid to low income households to help them with higher cost of living, including uh, groceries and uh, a little bit of support for renters. So we've done some of those things, just not enough uh, for my liking. 
Um, then uh, another dimension of it is uh, is the use of fiscal policy, not just monetary policy. So uh, taxes and spending decisions, uh, some of the things that governments can do can bring down inflation. Absolutely. An, an example of that is what's happened with childcare costs. We are rolling out a national childcare program in Canada, uh, aiming at a $10 a day uh, fee for parents whose kids are in, in childcare. And that has had a significant measurable impact in reducing inflation. There's no doubt about it. So there's an example of where uh, a government fiscal program can actually bring down inflation rather than just relying on the Bank of Canada. So uh, I think that we should have had a more uh, multidimensional approach. We should have used all the tools, all the tools in the toolbox, not just that one big hammer, the big hammer called the interest rate. Because the problem is if all you've got is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And uh, that's kind of how the Bank of Canada has been operating. Sure, thank you. And so that being said, then, do you think it's more viable to encourage Canadians to change their financial behaviors to adapt to this changes, these changes in economy? Or is the onus more on the institutions? Or do you think it's a blend of both? Uh, Sophie, I'm always reluctant to suggest that, you know, changes in individual behavior can somehow solve their, the problems, this cost of living crisis and the crunch that's uh, that's been created by inflation and rising interest rates. Uh, of course, every individual, every household is going to try and figure out how do I get through this, you know, and they might put off some uh, expenditures that they think are less essential or more discretionary. Uh, they might, you know, look for bargains. They might go to no frills instead of Loblaws. By the way, no frills is owned by Loblaws. So you're still supporting Loblaws when you go to no frills. Uh, and so on. So, um, you know, of course, people are going to do these things to try and get through and carry on, please. But uh, the idea that this is somehow the solution, I think, is misplaced. Uh, these are macroeconomic, structural, policy-driven problems, and I think they require structural macroeconomic uh, policy solutions. And uh, I, I don't like the, the idea that it's on the individual to figure out how to do it. I think that's a kind of blaming the victim idea. And uh, uh, policymakers with the government, the Bank of Canada, even with those businesses, you know, Galen Weston and his cardigan sweater uh, at Loblaws, uh, their profits uh, have risen enormously through this inflationary episode. Across the whole food retail sector, profits have more than doubled since before the pandemic. They lie about it and they say, well, I'm sorry, food is expensive because we're just passing on higher costs. That's just an outright lie. Your profits couldn't double if all you were doing was passing on higher costs. So um, they have a responsibility uh, as well. I don't, I don't want to let them off the hook. I don't want to take it for granted that companies have the right to charge whatever the market will bear, even amidst a uh, public health and economic emergency. Uh, so in that regard, yes, individuals are going to do whatever they can to get through this challenge. But uh, the solution is not, you know, financial literacy and more careful spending decisions for individuals. The solution is different policies so that these challenges can be resolved uh, at the structural and macroeconomic level. For sure. Um, and so how has this crisis affected other aspects of, can of Canada's public policy, if any, especially in a post-pandemic reality? Well, uh, the cost of living challenges, uh, of course, are infiltrating everything, including infiltrating our politics. So, you know, Canadians are, are feeling um, challenged and desperate and angry. 
And uh, given how sort of divisive our political discourse is these days and, and the role of social media and misinformation and so on in shaping how people think, um, I'm worried about how that's all going to pan out, especially if we have uh, a recession because of the Bank of Canada's uh, sort of uh, aggressive interest rate policies. Uh, so we'll have to see uh, what what happens, but I do worry that you know, uh, amidst that crisis and, and sort of desperation that many Canadians face, you may see an openness to some of the kind of extreme authoritarian populist uh, ideologies that uh, have uh, gotten momentum in the United States, of course, with Trump and the, the attack on Congress, but also in other countries. Think about the uh, neo-fascist governments in Hungary and Italy. Um, so, you know, I worry about how that's going to happen. Uh, I worry about how it will impact uh, people's long-term decisions. You know, you've got young people uh, entering a labor market today. Um, now, on one level, it's actually been pretty good the last couple of years. Um, you know, I have two young adult children and uh, I've been heartened by the fact that, you know, both of them could find decent work, not just, you know, uh, short-term gigs. And that's a good sign. That's how we should run the economy. But that is the result of an economy where the unemployment rate was lower rather than higher. Now we've got the Bank of Canada trying to undo that, uh, which again is doubly perverse. So what happens for young people who graduate into a post-pandemic recession, say, and how are their life chances and uh, opportunities going to be undermined uh, because of that? Uh, so I, I think there's uh, the, you know, in a way, I became an economist, Sophie, because I thought economics was at the center of uh, so many uh, policy, social, cultural uh, issues and, and goals. And I thought economics had so much to, uh, to contribute. Uh, James Carville, who was the famous uh, political advisor uh, to Bill Clinton when he was running for president, uh, put a sign on the campaign wall that said, it's the economy, comma, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. Everything revolves around the economy, and often that seems to be the case, and I think this is one of those moments. For sure, thank you. So that being said then, uh, what could global economic systems learn from Canada's approach to the post-COVID economy? What could, what could they learn from global economic systems, and what would this economic accessibility look like? Uh, well, I, I mean, I've listed many of the challenges faced uh, by Canada's uh, policymakers, and and they're real and and they're serious. On the other hand, we've got, I think, some important successes that that we could, uh, you know, boast about a little bit, pat ourselves on the back. We're very humble as Canadians, uh, but I think in some ways we uh, we should take pride in some of the things we've done. Here's one: surprisingly, despite all of the ups and downs of the pandemic. Uh, we've seen a very significant and sustained reduction in poverty in Canada uh, over the last decade. Uh, and that is clearly the result of some policy decisions that were taken uh, mostly at the federal level. Uh, the Canada Child Tax Benefit, the expansion of uh, some of the uh, income supplements for seniors and other measures uh, has led to a, a very significant decline in poverty, particularly children living in poverty. Uh, this is, uh, in a way, astounding that we could do something like this amidst all of that turmoil. And the, the policymakers who did it uh, deserve some credit. Um, you know, uh, we're a major energy producing country, including fossil fuels. So this has kind of tied us in knots a bit. But, you know, uh, at least I would say 
um, Canada has um, tried to take the right position in some of these international agreements and has been less disruptive of the international effort to contain greenhouse gas pollution than, than most other uh, fossil fuel producing and exporting countries, uh, certainly compared to countries like Australia or uh, Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states or even the United States. Although under Biden and their new new policies there, they're, they're suddenly, uh, I think, accelerating towards uh, uh, embracing the renewable energy economy and the opportunities that come with it. But, you know, I, I think Canada's position on those things needs to be stronger. But uh, I think uh, I think we can say we're part of the solution here, not part of the problem. Uh, and that's a positive thing. Even uh, in terms of our discourse, you know, our political discourse, I'm worried about what's happening. But uh, so far, Canada is a, a relatively peaceful and um, constructive uh, society uh, in terms of, you know, people's respect for each other and engagement. I, I think that's fraying. And I don't like uh, kind of the authoritarian populist themes that are emerging in different parts of our society. But um, I think Canada has a lot to offer the rest of the world. Amazing. Um, and so that being said, what can we expect looking forward with regard to inflation, interest rates and the cost of living crisis? Well, uh, you should always be suspicious when an economist pulls out the crystal ball and tries to forecast the future. <laughs> In fact, there's a saying that economists were placed on Earth to make astrologers look good. Okay, so uh, making predictions on things like this is a very risky uh, business. Uh, I'm fairly confident uh, in, unfortunately, saying things are going to get worse before they get better. Uh, the Bank of Canada is going to continue to increase interest rates, in my judgment, uh, at least one or two more uh, hikes in the in the months ahead. And that is going to put more pressure on households, uh, spending more money on interest payments to the bank rather than buying the necessities of life. Uh, we've seen several warning signs that the economy is uh, slowing down dramatically, and we'll get more of that and the unemployment rate uh, is rising. Now, whether that results in an all-out recession or not uh, remains to be seen. I will say that uh, from history, we should be pessimistic. We have never seen interest rates increase this much and the rate of inflation come down this much without a recession. So uh, if history is our guide, then we're in for some tough times ahead. Um, the greatest irony is, I'm, you know, I'd, it's not clear how quickly inflation would respond to a recession. There's no guarantee that just lifting the unemployment rate will automatically bring the inflation rate back to 2%. Um, so uh, in that case, it could be a long recession. As long as the Bank of Canada is allowed to stick to this uh, mission, uh, namely bring inflation to 2% no matter what. I think if we had a more balanced monetary policy, then getting inflation down would be one goal among uh, a short list of goals, including uh, economic stability and job creation. But uh, the Bank of Canada's vision of its mandate is we, we're focusing on getting inflation to 2%, and if that takes a recession, so be it. Uh, so that's why I'm, I'm pessimistic about what's uh, in the cards for the next year or two. Mm. See, thank you so much, Dr. Stanford. And our last question actually is from an economic standpoint, is it more sustainable than to invest in industries that benefit more climate action goals or is it better to invest in industries that, that benefit human resources despite no effect on the environment or is it a combination of both? 
Well, those both sound like uh, important priorities, uh, Sophie. Uh, there are tons of economic opportunities associated with the renewable energy revolution that's happening. Uh, there's going to be enormous capital investments required in everything, you know, obviously from uh, renewable energy facilities like uh, wind farms and solar arrays to the new transmission equipment that's going to be required to efficiently manage and distribute that electricity to um, uh, machinery and appliances and cars that use renewable energy as their uh, source of power. Uh, in Canada, uh, we've had a strong automotive industry for decades and luckily with government support, we're seeing that industry adapt to the uh, opportunities of producing electric vehicles and components uh, in electric vehicles like batteries. So uh, in this regard, I'm, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that we'll continue to have a strong auto industry even as autos change so dramatically. And the same goes for other uh, types of industry that use uh, energy. Uh, we could be using um, renewable energy to power our steel mills and our aluminum smelters, uh, for example. And I think that is going to uh, happen. Uh, at the same time, there's a whole set of other industries out there that are relatively benign in terms of their climate impact. So um, em emphasizing those industries and expanding them over time uh, is another way of uh, growing the economy, but with less of an environmental footprint. Healthcare and education, for example, have relatively modest uh, climate footprints. So putting more resources into those things, like our national childcare program, you know, that's going to create hundreds of thousands of jobs. It's going to facilitate hundreds of thousands more people to enter the labor market uh, because parents can afford to send their kids to school instead of having one of them, usually the woman, unfortunately, stay at home with the kids. So uh, these are other industries that we can be promoting while um, uh, addressing those climate priorities. At the end of the day, we have to wrap our minds around the fact that the fossil fuel industry is going to disappear for the most part. And instead of denying that and delaying it and resisting it, uh, we should recognize that it's essential and then do everything we can to maximize all of the opportunities, including the renewable energy industries, but also the whole suite of other industries uh, to make sure that we've got prosperous job opportunities in a non-fossil fuel world. For sure. Thank you so much. Um, so that concludes our episode of Policy Talks today. Um, before we leave, do you have any final thoughts, concluding remarks, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, well, thank you, Sophie, for having me, first of all, and um, my uh, best wishes to everyone listening, to everyone pursuing uh, an education in policy studies. Uh, I think uh, we need more, uh, more well-trained, um, uh, committed, caring policy experts in Canada, and uh, I hope that uh, your program is uh, going to contribute to that goal. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again for your time, and we hope you enjoy your day. Thanks, Sophie. Dr. Jim Stanford is economist and director of the Centre for Future Work and is one of Canada's best-known economic commentators. That's it from us on this episode of Policy Talks. A special thank you to Dr. Jim Stanford and to you, our listeners. Thank you.